Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. Last week, I posed the question that I hope those of you who heard the message have had time to really dwell on, and the question was, what is the church? And even if you weren't here last week, I pray that being here this morning, we've all been able to exclaim from our hearts, this here, in this building today, is the church. I mentioned there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of religious noise, there's a lot of cultural distractions, there's a lot of things we're comfortable with that don't have anything to do with the leadership of God or His truth or the Holy Spirit. And so, (laughs) we're not much worried what the sign out there says. I'll just put it that way. This is the Lord's congregation. This is His service. And whatever the Holy Spirit leads is fine. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to have a place to worship in spirit and in truth. Because that's what the Lord taught us. He said, I am spirit and they that worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. And listen, we shouldn't need reminding, but we do. You can have truth and not have the love and presence of God and you don't have it. You can have what you think is the love and presence of God and be wrong doctrinally and you don't have it. He says, I'm spirit and truth. Where the Holy Spirit is present, He drives out our error. Not just the darkness of our hearts and our sins. He drives out our doctrinal incorrectness. It takes time. But He does that. And the more we draw to Him, the more we want our own wrongness to be exposed. But listen, it's not about being right. It is about being filled with the love of God. That's why we're all overwhelmed this morning. That's why I've seen uh, the Lord move some of you in ways that I've never seen before. Because... His love has been shed abroad in our hearts and is moving among us and in us and through us. That's what we're all hungry for. Not another religious routine, not another service, not another polished speaker. We need the power of God. And I'm thankful, thankful for that. I do feel the need to continue what I started last Sunday. Um, And I'll just say this and then get right into it. This type of preaching is outside my comfort zone. It's hard for me to teach. I like to proclaim. I like to uh, challenge. I like to encourage. I like to get up and, and extemporaneously declare what's on my heart, what God put there. But sometimes we need to understand something deeper than that. And this is, this is part of what's on my heart. The ecclesia. Or the church. You'll notice if you hear me preach very much that I I try not to use that word very much. The church. And I'm going to explain to you why today. That might sound like a funny thing if you've never thought of it before. Quick recap of last Sunday. I uh, pointed out that the Lord's congregation... That, that's how it should be translated, congregation. Ecclesia should be congregation. We'll, we'll explain that. That there are uh, seven categories or factors that influence how we come together, what we do, and how we do it. And I won't spend much time on them, but I'll just recap. The first 
factor or category that should influence every one of the Lord's true congregations is the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Everything that Christ explicitly commanded and everything that He implicitly taught and everything He lived. That should be foremost, paramount, front and center, the main thing we focus on. And anytime we lose sight of that, we're missing the mark. Everything else is secondary. If we get nothing else right, but we get an obsessive love for Christ in our hearts, He'll be able to use us. Now, having an all-consuming love for Him is going to make us want to understand more and more of His truth. And we'll become more approved by Him. But everything He taught, everything He lived is the number one category. That should be the main influence on a congregation. The second category is everything explicitly taught in Scripture. And I'll just say this. Sometimes people think God tells them something. And if what they thought he told them directly contradicts what he revealed in his word, they're wrong. It's simple. I have had times in the past that I thought God showed me something and it didn't line up exactly. And therefore I said, this is either my emotions or this is some other spirit. But it's not the Lord because he doesn't contradict himself. So everything explicitly taught in Scripture, we should know the Lord, know His teachings, know His will. The main way that He reveals to us what is true about Him is is this book. Explicit teachings of Scripture. Uh, We might call these the doctrines of, of the Lord's congregation. The third category was everything implicitly taught in Scripture. These are all the things that the Bible doesn't say word for word, you should do this or do not do this. If, if the Bible, if God had had those men write a guidebook for life that addressed every single personal individual scenario, the book would be bigger than this building. And we would never have time to read it. So, he taught us not just explicit teachings. There are some very clear explicit teachings in Scripture that we need to know. But there's also implicit or things that are built into the fabric of this God-inspired word that help us know how to do life. And it should help us know how to order our worship services. The fourth category, I love this one, is everything God has written in our hearts. And that, this morning, I'm reminded that what he writes in our hearts is so much deeper than anything I can study, figure out, and ascertain in my mind. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try, obviously. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use our brains. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study. Of course, of course we should. But when God saves you, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. When, he, when you come to be His child, Jesus described that as being born from above. Now, religious teachers have hijacked that and turned it into born again, and they say born again all the time until it doesn't mean anything. The word, Greek word anathen is born from above. It's the same word that was used when the temple veil was torn in half from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. Do you know the significance of that? That was the barrier. That was the symbolic and in history literal barrier of us from the presence of God. It was torn top to bottom when Jesus laid down his life. 
And we must be born from above, top to bottom, from God. Everybody that's born of God loves God. And so when God uh, saves us, when we come to have a new birth, when we're born from above, He implants into us His Holy Spirit, and He begins to condition the inside of us to be something we never were before. That's not the same as knowing religious stuff. When I was a kid, I was raised uh, in this kind of a congregation, except we didn't have our own building. I'm talking about a handful of people who were hungry for the power of God. And I was taught that there will be a time that the Lord lets you know you're separated from Him. And when that happens, you need to repent. Well, how will I know? The best advice I was ever getting was the Holy, ever given, the Holy Spirit will let you know. As a kid, I thought, well, that's not very helpful. But it's the only true response we can give. The Holy Spirit will let you know when you are His. And when He does that, He changes you. And He continues to change you from the inside out. When I was a kid, I knew a lot of religious information because I'd been trained. And we should be. But I wasn't saved. And just before the Lord saved me, I was 14, I had a little Church of Christ girlfriend. I don't know what I was doing with a girlfriend, but I had one. And and we would argue, because she believed baptism is what saves you, and I had been taught that Jesus saves you, not with baptism, but with his own power. So we would argue about it. And then when the Lord saved me, I remember realizing I was so dumb, so ineffective, so foolish, it was all wasted. When he saved me, something happened inside. He wrote his law in my heart. And that's deeper, and it's different than the stuff I know in my mind. Again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't know truth in your mind. We should. But there's something deeper inside that I have seen all around the world when I've met people who aren't churched, but they know God, and there's something written inside. And so that is uh, everything that God has written in our hearts is the fourth category that should influence the Lord's congregation. The fifth category is everything that's revealed by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, prompted by the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about an active, living relationship with God through His Holy Spirit. That should be one of the factors that influence how a congregation assembles and worships. We're not worshiping the letter of the law. We're not worshiping some dead tradition. We are worshiping at a God who continues to lead, guide, direct, and reveal what He wants to our hearts personally. Again, we don't need to elevate our own personal revelation higher than any of those first four categories, which are what Jesus taught and lived, what's taught in Scripture, what's implicitly taught in Scripture, what God has written in our hearts. Those things, I think, are above these last couple. But the Holy Spirit does lead us. He does show us things. He does guide us. And we must be sensitive to His voice. Sometimes there's so much noise that we can't hear His voice because He doesn't usually shout in competition It's rare that he does that. The times that he does, it's uncomfortable. Sometimes he has to use things like pain to get to us. 
And this is not the message, but I feel the need to just take a sidestep because of what's been said this morning. Things happen in life that are impossible for us to understand. And sometimes in an attempt to understand why suffering happens or why why bad things happen to good people, we directly or indirectly say that God made it happen. And I think the most accurate way to understand that is the world's messed up. (laughs) I'm messed up. You're messed up. There's brokenness. There's sin. People make bad decisions because of sin. And sometimes a suffering happens to you because of your own choice. Be silly to blame God for that. If I go out and shut my hand in the door, it's not God's fault. Say, God, why didn't you keep my hand out of the door? Because he gave me a brain to control my fingers. He, he doesn't do stuff like that. Sometimes suffering happens because of someone else's sin. And those are tough. Sometimes suffering happens just because the world's broken. I can't think of a single time in my life that something terrible happened and I felt like God caused it. Not when I look back on it. What I find is God is a good, good father who redeems the worst brokenness and the pain and the hurt and helps me in spite of everything. So that part of my conviction about that is because the Lord has continued to reveal this truth to me through his Holy Spirit. He's confirmed it. It's deeper than information. I know that the things that have been hard and hurt me in life, that God continues to use those. And I'm thankful for that. So that fifth category, what the Holy Spirit leads, that should be a big influence on the congregation. The sixth category I mentioned is everything else. (laughs) That's not the first five. Everything else that actually helps us facilitate the first five. These are the beneficial traditions, customs, and habits. Like, for example, we usually have a couple songs to start the service. There's nothing wrong with that. It gives us a chance to get settled in. It gives us a chance to calm down. It gives a chance maybe for the words to sink into our hearts, to prepare our hearts for the gospel. Those are all good things. But there are times, if you come here enough, that I may get up and preach before we sing. Sometimes I preach before we have prayer. Because we have to continue to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So this category is everything that complements or conforms to or promotes the first five things that God Uh, expects to influence how we worship Him in the assembly. This category, it's not doctrinal points. As I said last time, these aren't hills to die on. We don't need to fight over whether we sing two or three songs. Like, it's just not important. Now, I have a message on my heart that I was ready to get up and preach, but a couple of y'all had songs on your heart that you needed to sing. And part of us deferring to each other is allowing the Lord to lead and let that happen. I'm not more important. I'm still going to preach. And the Lord blessed our, our hearts through that, those singing, that song. Both of them. The seventh category. <laughs> I want to mention this again like I did last time. This is all the other stuff that I wish we didn't have. A lot of congregations are more influenced by the seventh category than any of the first six. 
The first six, again, the life and teachings of Christ, explicit teaching of Scripture, implicit teachings of Scripture, the law written in our hearts, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and then everything we do that helps us do those things. There's a seventh category that is very prevalent in religion today, and that is all the stuff we want. The comfort, the attention, the, uh, the cultural semblance. I've been to too many churches that are too much like a rock concert. And the, the, I'm not criticizing any one congregation, but you felt that this morning. The Holy Spirit is deeper than a, a worship band or a, a big speakers or a bunch of noise. He's underneath all of that and more powerful. But He's not going to compete with it. There's a reason that we have felt the presence of God so strongly here in these recent weeks. Mainly it's His favor, blessing, and grace, but also because we're hungry for Him. I think God has brought together a people from many different backgrounds, many varied interests, like the song says, brought us here because we're hungry for the same thing, the Lord. I think a lot of us, it seems this way, I know it's true for my heart, I'm tired of all the religious noise. Whatever name it's under. I want the Lord to lead us and be pleased and show us what the congregation is. So, those are the seven points I needed to mention again, because we need to get it. And... I said last time, before we can spend too much time, and we may spend time in future messages dwelling on those categories in more detail, but I posed this question last time, if somebody asked you, what is the church, what would you say? And there's lots of information, lots of ideas that people might say. Um, I won't repeat what I said last time, but I'll just say, again, we experienced what the Lord meant for the church to be this morning. That's that, that. You can look at the New Testament, prove that in the book of Acts, and we might do that sometime. Um, so, for us to understand, now I've got all these pages I'm not even using because I'm trying to follow the Lord. It doesn't mean I shouldn't be prepared. Because <laughs> He put something on my heart to study. You understand the difference, right? I, I'm telling you that so you know. I'm not just reading something I came up with. I'm trying to preach from my heart as the Lord guides me. If we're going to even attempt to answer the question, what is the church appropriately? And I want you to be patient with me this morning. Because I might say some things that you don't like. But I want you to give me the grace to listen And then go home and ask the Lord if I'm wrong or right. That's all that matters. Is this what God says is true? It's not just my idea. And if you turn out and you think the Lord showed you I'm wrong, I would love to talk to you. But you're going to have to use the Bible to show me where I'm wrong. Not just some tradition you're used to. Okay? So, if we're even going to attempt to answer the question, what's the church? We have to back up further than our own personal experiences, than our own recent religious customs. We have to back up further than our own traditions. We have to back up further than the King James Bible. We have to back up further than the English language and figure out what the Lord actually established. 
If you were to go online and Google church, the first definition that comes up is a building used for public Christian worship. That's one of the reasons I don't like using that word in the context of what we're doing. Because this building is not the ecclesia. This building is decaying. One day it's going to fall down. I know some of you think that's a sacrilegious thing to say. It's just wood and concrete and some mold in the walls and two-by-fours and metal on the roof and carpet. I'm thankful we have it, but this is not a holy thing. And I want you to hear me on this. If we ever elevate this building above the position it should be in, it's dangerous. I say, why are you mad? I'm not mad. I'm stirred by the Holy Spirit. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We need to be careful that we don't do anything to displease Him. And elevating any material object above its place is dangerous. That's why we don't have icons in our services. Do you know what icons are? Catholics and other congregations use them. And I've had friends of mine tell me, well, we don't worship the icon, we worship what it represents. And I say, why don't you just worship what it represents then? Skip the in-between. There is no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. We don't need any other stuff. And I'll tell you, I'm not comfortable with this Christian flag or this American flag or this cross in here. Or the phony painting of Jesus in the background. This is where I said, be patient with me because this is burning in my heart. None of this stuff has anything to do with the ecclesia. And sometimes it directly distracts from what God meant for us to do. This cross isn't holy. It's a a weapon of torture. A horrible thing. And the cross doesn't save us. Jesus does. The cross killed God. You understand that? It's not a great thing to celebrate. I know some of y'all have them around your necks, and I'm not trying to be mean. But you ought to think about why you're wearing it. My grandfather used to say, if you want to wear something, wear an open tomb instead of a cross. (laughs) I'm not on a soapbox. This is part of the message. Okay. The church is not the building. It's not the stuff we have sitting around. It's not this lectern. It's not the pews. All that stuff, I say that word a lot, but I I, I can't say other words I would say. All that is added by people. When the Lord established His ecclesia, there was nothing but Him and His people. Sometimes they met outside, sometimes they met in homes, sometimes they met in synagogues. Sometimes they met in caves throughout history because they would be murdered by the government if if they were in public. Sometimes they met in public and got murdered. And then, in more recent history, we began to build nice edifices. And don't misunderstand me, I like this building. Nothing wrong with it, as long as we keep it in its proper place. We could go out on the front lawn, I hope we do when it's warmer, and worship just as well, maybe better than we can in here. That would get some people's attention driving by to see 50 people on the front lawn. Say, what are those crazies doing? They might stop and try to find out. If it's real. Okay. Um, 
if you, if you go further into what the word church is, it comes from the Old English, eventually it comes from this word kirk, and uh, this is different than the word that the congregation of God comes from, which is the Greek word ekklesia. In history, there was a Greek word called uh, kyriakon, which meant of the Lord. It was used sometimes as, uh, in houses of worship, especially in the East but not commonly used, and it's not really used in the New Testament. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The established state church, which at the time was the Church of England, who authorized this translation, who came from the Roman Catholic Church, has chosen a path that supports uh, their own doctrinal positions when it conflicts with the expressed teachings of Scripture. They stick with their own doctrinal positions. This is not accidental that the Greek word ekklesia is in this book, church, over and over and over. And I, I want to show you this with history because it's important. People died because of a word. You understand that? This man, if you can see it, this is a, a, a painting of what William Tyndale presumably looked like. This is William Tyndale. This is a biography on him. There would have been no Shakespeare without him. The English language as we know it would not have existed without him. We wouldn't have as good of a, a Bible as we have without him. And one of the reasons, I'm going to explain, he was murdered by the religious governmental authority is because he chose to translate the word ecclesia as congregation. Do you know that? Let me, let me just read that to you. And I'm... Like I said, I'm trying to follow the Lord, but this might be a little bit scattered. This is the biographer. This is David Daniel, who's a, a, an expert on 16th century literature, particularly Tyndale. He wrote a biography on him. He's talking here about the epilogue, the, the little letter that Tyndale wrote at the end of his New Testament. And this is a, a, a reprint uh, with the spelling updated. You can get it pretty cheap if you want to see it. And you'll find out that Tyndale's New Testament, all the best parts of the authorized version, King James Version, were stolen from this. All the most memorable... The reason many of us like the King James Version, the memorable poetic parts of it, they just copied from him. It doesn't mean I have a King James Bible right here. It, it doesn't mean I don't use it, it's not good, I don't like it. But we need to... I'll get into that in a moment. Okay. This is uh, the biographer talking about Tyndale when he wrote his epilogue to his New Testament shortly before he was killed. And he says, um, the second paragraph explains, this is Tyndale saying, Mark the plain and manifest places of the scripture, and in doubtful places see thou add no interpretation contrary to them. This is what the translator of the New Testament said. But, as Paul saith, let all be conformable in agreeing to the faith. Tyndale's governing rule of his heart was, whatever I'm translating, if I am uncertain about what it means, I am going to make sure it conforms to the body of Scripture as a whole and the faith that has been passed down. I'll tell you in a minute what King James required, which wasn't that. Thus, Tyndale is not being perverse in translating the New Testament word for Christian minister as uh, uh, presbyteros, 
as senior. In his first translation, he translated that as senior, reserving the word priest for the occasional Greek word uh, iris, which is where we get the word hierarchy, the Jewish religious official. In Greek, a presbyteros is a more senior man, and now in, in this translation we use the word elder. My title here is, is elder. Not because I'm old, but because a Baptist congregation chose to ordain me to the full work of the ministry. And the group of Christians together, called by the New Testament, ecclesia, Tyndale calls correctly a congregation. The Greek word means an assembly, ultimately those called together by the town crier. There was a word congregatio, which had been used by Erasmus in his parallel Latin translation for the Greek word ecclesia, wherever it occurred. But Tyndale avoids church because it is not what the New Testament says. And he goes on and describes the different ways that the state church authorized words to be translated versus how this man of God translated them and died for it. The Greek word uh, metanoio, which means precisely to repent, Tyndale calls it repent because that's what it means. And the church officials call it do penance. I could go on and on. There's a big difference in doing penance and repenting. That's why some people say Hail Marys instead of getting on their knees and begging God for forgiveness. And I'm not trying to pick on a particular religious flavor. So, um, Tyndale translated the word ecclesia, which I explained last time, I'll explain it again. It's made up of two Greek words. The first word is a primary preposition, ek, which means out of, like taken from a particular thing or place. And the second part of the word is kaleo, which means to call. And it has a particular connotation of calling with force or calling loudly or calling with purpose. Thus, the idea of the town crier who gets everybody together for an important event. So the word built into the language of this dynamic, God could have had the Bible written in Hebrew or Aramaic or some other current language. Uh, instead, uh, he inspired many of the New Testament writers to write in the language of the time, which was Koine Greek. It was the dynamic language that was in the air at the time. He chose the most understandable language, not the most holy language. Okay, And by the way, these two elderly sisters in the back told me last time to not try to end my preaching early, and if anybody gets tired, feel free to get up and stretch. So, uh, thank you for that wise advice. And I'll tell you, I'm not going to go any longer than I have to. But if you need to stretch your legs, you have my permission to stand up. You won't bother me, okay? All right. So, ekaleho, those two words come together to mean ecclesia, the called out. And... The translators could have transliterated that word. Transliterated means copy the letters over from one language alphabet to this other alphabet. That's where we get the word um, baptize. Baptize is transliterated from the Greek word baptizo. Except where the authorized version wants to call it 
something different. But it's transliterated because there was no clear... They could have said plunge, which is what it means. It means put under. Plunge, dip, or immerse. Could have been translated as plunge. Baptism could have just been called plunge. Plunge beneath the water. But it seemed better to, to transliterate it. So the translators could have, in absence of a better method, transliterated ecclesia. They could have just spelled it out ecclesia. And then we would have just had to understand what it means in context. Instead of that, the authorized version used the word church. Tyndale more accurately used the word congregation. That's why usually I say congregation, assembly, um, body of Christ. It's more accurate. So let me give you a little history that ties into all of this. Christ came, died, first lived. A perfect, sinful life that none of us could have lived. Then he died. At the hands of sinful men, but by his own choice. He said, no man takes my life, I willingly lay it down. Then he resurrected. He changed the world forever. No matter what modern scholars do to try to erase the reality of his life, death, and resurrection, it can't be erased. It changed everything. He changed everything. A little more than, and, and, and the people that followed him gave witness to his life, death, and resurrection in such a powerful way that it is historically indisputable that Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected. That is, forget what uh, fake scholars have told you, that is the most established fact in recent history. I'm talking about historically established, not just the Holy Spirit told you. Okay, 300 years after that, Constantine came to power and basically merged Christianity with the state government. It's not clear to me, it depends on who you talk to, whether his motives were good or bad. But what came out of it was certainly evil. It seems like he started with good intentions. The Christians had been persecuted I'm just going to tell you what happened. I mean, heads chopped off, pulled in half, sawn in half, pikes. They used. Do you know this? They used to take these sharp sticks, cut off a Christian's head, stick it on the pike, light it on fire to light the streets of Rome. And I'm sorry to be this graphic. This is real history. This is why it matters what we say and what we believe and what words we use. I could go on and on, but I don't think I need to. Okay, in Germany, around 1440, a goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg invented a movable type printing press, which started the printing revolution. So, for 1400 years after Christ, there were no books, as we think of them. Do you know that? 1400 years after Christ. Now, there were, there were scrolls. There were parchments, there were something like a book, but they weren't this mechanical type. There were scribes who, by hand, copied from one, one a book to another. That's, that's how they had books. But I just want you to realize there was nothing in that time that could fit a couple thousand pages into something you could hold in one hand. It didn't exist. Um. This printing press that Gutenberg came up with, it could uh, print or produce up to 3,600 pages in a workday compared to 40 by hand printing or only a few by hand copying. 
1525, William Tyndale begins translating the New Testament. 1525. Now, at the time, the English language was not like it is now. It would be a little bit difficult for most of us to read, and it hadn't been around that long. Uh, In England, it was forbidden to translate the Bible into vernacular language. Vernacular means the language the people actually spoke. They were only allowed to use Latin. Why? Because not that many people knew it. Only the priests. And a few special um, religious authorities. This is part of the hierarchical power structure that is evil. Why do I say it's evil? Because I don't like Catholics? No, I've met plenty of Catholics that I like very much. But I don't like the evils of that organization that has suppressed light and truth and blinded people from the power and uh, salvation of Christ. It's evil to tell a person you have to come to a religious official to know what God said. You don't. You know what Tyndale said? One of the reasons he was killed, somebody said something about the Pope and he said, I defy the Pope. I live for a day, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I live for a day that the plowboy will know the Bible better than the Pope. By God's grace, we're in that day. Okay, so in England it was forbidden to translate the Bible in 1525. Tyndale had to take his English translation of the New Testament to Cologne to have it printed, but his endeavor was uncovered and he was forced to halt the printing and flee. After his arrival in Worms, this is a city, he had a new edition printed in 1526, had around 3,000 copies. Some copies were smuggled into England and sold there, but owning a copy of Tyndale's New Testament still attracted the death penalty. I want you to get this because it ties into what we're talking about. Owning a copy of what he published in 1526, the state government would kill you. Today, only three copies of the 1526 edition of Tyndale's New Testament are known to survive. William Tyndale paid for his work with his life. He went into hiding, but was eventually arrested in Antwerp in 1535. At that time, he had produced a revised edition of the New Testament, published in 1534. He had also published the Pentateuch, which is the uh, five books of Moses, published in 1530, and had begun his translation of the Old Testament. Tyndale was held prisoner in the castle of Vilvoorde in Belgium. He was convicted as a heretic strangled at the stake, and then burned. It wasn't enough to kill him. They had to burn his dead body. His translation, however, survived and found its way into subsequent editions of the Bible very soon after his death. So, 1526, he begins translating the New Testament. He has to go to another country because he would be killed. 1534, he revises it, makes it a little more accurate because his his uh, uh, Greek understanding improved over the years. In 1536, he was strangled and burned at the stake for the crime of being a heretic after being in prison for more than a year. What does that mean? Why was he a heretic? You might not know this, so I want to make sure you know. In 1604, after King James came to power in 1603, he appointed Richard Bancroft as the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was part of this hierarchical religious government structure. And he would oversee the translation and the uh, production of the authorized version, the 1611, which we call King James Bible now. 
1604, he um, organized a conference called the Hampton Court Conference. And I won't spend a lot of time on this. You can read about it. Um, I found a really good article on Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. You can find that online. But basically, he had all these religious experts come together, presumably to try to bring unity. And he didn't change anything for the better. One thing that did come out of it was moving toward an authorized version. What does authorized mean? By whom? God already authorized it. When he spoke the words to his writers in the first century, and before that to Moses and other writers, he already authorized it. We're talking about state government sanctioned. Like a while back, you remember some churches weren't meeting because the governor didn't allow them to, didn't authorize them to? That's not from God. We don't have to get permission from the state to do what God has already led us and commanded us to do. So, um, one thing that happened is James came to grips with some of the tensions and problems of the Reformed Church in England, signaled his intention to be an active supreme governor, and demanded conformity in an evangelical church that could encompass a wide range of Protestant opinion. Basically, this conference, a year after he became king, uh, he established that he's the supreme authority. Not only is he the king, he's basically the head of the church. That's why I try not to use that word. Because we mean something different than it means historically and presently. So I want to encourage you. Say, say, say body of Christ or congregation or assembly. Um, part of what came out of and I'm, I won't be much longer, but keep, keep tracking with me. Part of what came out of King James coming to power... Around 1604, he wrote a letter to one of his subservients. And in that letter, he identified, uh, if I remember correctly, 15 uh, rules that he wanted the authorized version to be conformed to. They weren't followed explicitly, but he said, this is what I want. And I just want to tell you three of those rules, which ultimately are why Tyndale was a heretic. Rule number three, the old ecclesiastical words must be kept, for example, the word church, not to be translated as congregation. Why? Because if you have some religious upstart heretic translate a long-established church word in a way that threatens the hierarchical power structure of the church, that's a problem. Do you know this? One of the recommendations or rules that the king made for this translation, authorized version, was if there's a conflict between the actual Greek or Hebrew and what the church has already been using, stick with what the church has already been using. In other words, we don't want to get more accurate. We want to make sure to stay where we've been. Rule number four, when a word hath diverse significations that to be kept which hath been most commonly used by the most ancient fathers, being agreeable to the propriety of the place and the analogy of the faith. What does that mean? If a word could be translated many different ways, stick with the way that the lineage of church experts, authorities, have used it. Again, conform to our power structure, rather than trying to find what's actually true. Fourteen, 
These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the bishop's Bible. So at the time there was the bishop's Bible, which was the one that the uh, priests and religious experts used. Um, King James knew that his translators were using that Bible as a foundation. And he said, when you find a different translation that works better than that one, better with the text than the bishop's Bible, and then he specifically names Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, or the Geneva Bible. Do you realize that? In 15... What did I say? 1536... I think, yeah, 1536, they killed Tyndale for being a heretic. Yes, 1536, they kill him for being a heretic. 70, 80 years later, they say, copy his translation all you need to. That's disgusting. They used what he did to serve their purposes... But it wasn't okay when it was pure from God. And I, I'm upset about it. Because many, many people died unnecessarily. You know what, though? God used their deaths for His glory and to ultimately point more people to Him. So, let, let me say this while I'm at it. If I haven't already offended you, maybe, maybe this will. Um, which, by the way, is not my goal. There are some very well-meaning people who believe that the King James Bible is the inerrant Word of God. Inerrant meaning without error. I want to say this as gently as possible. That's just silly. There wasn't any English language when the New Testament was written. There was nothing like English until a thousand years later. And there was nothing like English that you would even be able to read until around Chaucer's time in the 1300s. And I bet most of y'all can't read that. I, I was an English major, so I, this stuff is... I enjoy it. But even I would have trouble with English that's more than a few hundred years old. So this... Did God use this book? Does He use it? Yeah. It's my favorite translation. Why? Because they stole most of it from Tyndale. All the memorable parts are from him. <laughs> so I, I use it. I don't have a problem with it. But the idea that God uh, authorized this is not accurate. The idea that he spoke King James English to Paul and Peter and those guys isn't accurate. The idea that Jesus spoke this isn't accurate. It's not historically true and we need to know that. We don't need to depend on... That's one of those traditions in category number seven we need to get rid of. King James only. It's just silly. Now, are there things in this translation that are better than some newer translations? Absolutely. And I would love to sit down side by side and discuss it with you. One of the, the most significant are in um, Colossians, I believe it is... Uh, the King James translates the faith of Christ. Paul is talking about the faith that saves you. This He calls it the faith of Christ. Then all the newer translations call it faith in Christ. And it completely misses the genitive construction in the Greek, which is that the faith comes from Christ. So there are lots of things in this translation that are better, in my opinion. But you know what? There's also things in this that are confusing. 
and dangerous. One time I was going to preach a sermon from, I think, James. The King James says, Be not many masters, knowing you shall receive the greater condemnation. You know that one? I was all ready to preach a sermon about how we didn't need to have divided attention. Be not many masters. Don't, don't have your iron in too many fires. You know what it actually says? Not many of you should desire to be teachers. Completely different. That's a case where a newer translation gets it more accurate. So here's what I'm telling you. We need to rely on God. You don't need to be afraid of somebody using a different book. You need to know the Word of God well enough that you know if they're wrong or not. Okay. A couple more things and I'll finish. What is the ecclesia? What is the church? This is something I wrote from my heart that I, I think is true. In its purest sense, the ecclesia is meant to be the living breathing embodiment of the will of God expressed as the body of Christ. She's comprised of individual members mutually submitting to each other, and voluntarily, by the way, and ultimately to the directions of her head, her Savior, Jesus Christ. Each member has an equal say in a New Testament congregation, just as each member in a human body has a voice and a say, but ultimately, as with the human body, the head can direct members of the body to do things that are good for it, even if that member might not realize it at the moment. So also the head of the congregation, Jesus Christ, can direct members of the body to do things that might not seem comfortable or good at the moment. And praise God for that. I'm glad He can tell us what's best for us. Let me read that again. What is the ecclesia? We are meant to be the living, breathing embodiment of the will of God expressed as the body of Christ. With God's help, I'll continue maybe next week on some more of those seven influences. But I may not. We'll see. We'll see what He leads this week. I want to reiterate, and then I'll finish, that I meant what I said. I don't want any of you to be unnecessarily mad at me. Um, if you think I said something wrong, tell me. Not right now. Uh, to Go find out, because you, you haven't had time to process what I said yet. Go home with your Bible with God and figure out if I said something wrong, and then let's meet. I mean that sincerely. My grandfather, he was my mentor in the gospel, and one valuable lesson he taught me was, don't believe what I say. That's one reason I'm a Baptist is historically we've held to that instead of this idea of you have to believe only what I say. Don't believe what I say. Go find, see, search it out for yourself. See what God reveals to you. And if I'm wrong, tell me. But I don't think I am. This is too deep in my heart and too uh, much history behind it. So, <laughs> what's the point of all this? Let's continue to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We tried to cover some of the truth today, which I think the Spirit of the Lord was with. We also had some presence of God, the Spirit, this morning, and we'll see what else the Lord has for us. Does anybody have a song on your heart? I know there's many singers. Do any of you feel led to... 167, Jesus paid it all. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. What's that line? Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow.
Oh, beautiful. Stand if you're, if you're able to. Let's sing this together from the heart. Worship the Lord.